Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the reading of God's word. Yeah, we are very, very different. Uh, Pastor Francis Taller, better looking, better preacher, better skins. Uh, you know, he was out uh, visiting us not too long ago, and everyone in my church was saying, Pastor Ben, are you actually, are you guys same age? I'm like, yes, we are. He could pass as somewhere like early 40, whereas you, I have a nickname at my church, they just call me Harabaji or Grandpa. <laughs> I've accepted that role. I have many grandchildren, uh, courtesy of many members at our church. Uh, I don't know whether it's the water in the Jersey area. He doesn't age. He doesn't have any wrinkles. Um, but I know one thing that I do better than Francis is that I have a lot more friends than he does. Um, it is my life call uh, in, on this side of the glory to stay as a friend. And I want to thank you, the church and the congregation, for loving him, supporting him and also allowing him to do what he does best, that is to preach God's word unto you. Um, all jokes aside, one of my favorite preachers, uh, I respect him tremendously. I do have a mixed feeling as well, too. I wish I could turn back the clock and forget the whole idea of church planning all over. But he and I, we actually started uh, together that journey. Right out of seminary, we met, we just you know, clicked and bonded our ways into ministry, and we church planted together, um, and that was so long ago, almost like 25 years ago. So I just want to say it's a, a tremendous honor and privilege to be here to share God's word, and I hope and pray that if you don't remember anything at all today, that you will hear the message of the gospel that is Jesus and Jesus himself, and may the Lord truly uh, convict us and encourage us today. I know I'm at a Presbyterian building at a church, but can we start with an amen on that one? Join me. Let me uh, pray for us before we delve into today's word. Father, we come before you in humility, confessing our shortcomings and our need of your saving grace. Jesus, we come before you and we ask that you will reveal yourself so that we may see the surpassing glory and beauty of you, so that we will fall in love with the Savior. And Holy Spirit, we come before you because you are the teacher and there's nothing that we can do on our own unless you minister unto us. So Lord, Triune God, deliver your word unto us, open our eyes so that we may have faith and trust in him. And in the end, may we come to be convicted of the gospel. Call this in Jesus' name, amen. Ten Commandments, the law, which you are very familiar with, and I see some teenagers, and I'm sure you've been taught, it was a treat to see Mia standing and leading us in reading of God's word. I remember you from, we won't go into history, 
Christians right there too. Uh, many of you guys have learned and you've been taught at a faithful church all about Ten Commandments. But I do think that we as a church do not pay enough attention. So we do actually want to consider uh, the Ten Commandments, particularly the first law, the first word that is given to us. I wish you know, we had more time to go over all of them. But before I actually go into uh, today's word, I want you to know that, by the way, we only have two points uh, that will guide us. So uh, I'll try to, well, actually, I'm not going to make a promise how long this will be, but I'll do my very best to keep it short and sweet. But one thing I want to do before we actually dive into the first commandment is I want us to reconsider the Ten Commandments, the law that has been given to us. So why is it important for us to study the law? And why is it important for us to give our attention to the Ten Commandments? And before we do anything else, one thing that I need to do is I do need to, uh, as a pastor, spend some time to maybe correct and change some of the misunderstanding that is out there. The general tendency is that when we are talking about the law, we, many of us, view it as negatively. It's something that is uh, burdensome, something that is heavy, it's limiting, it's very restrictive, right? So when we approach the law, we think of it as it's basically God telling us what not to do. Like a harness that takes away freedom, that also destroys our individuality. That is often the general tendency of the law. So I do think that we need to change that because law suffers from what I call a terrible reputation. Many people, in fact, approach the law in this way. It's the characteristics of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament is all about the law, then New Testament is all about God's grace. The law, according to God in the Old Testament, is God who reveals himself as someone that is holy, righteous, one who is maybe angry, and, you know, all the time. Whereas we come to the New Testament, we see a father who is loving, more gracious. So we make these distinctions saying law is terrible, awful, while grace is delightful. We want to study them more. But I want you to know that nothing can be further from the truth. Law and grace are not antithetical. Rather, they are one, and they're the same. And one thing I want you to know is that when you give attention to the law, there is grace you will come to find, goodness you will come to experience. The very confession of psalmist who says, I delight in God's law. And I just want to actually pause and ask this question. When was the last time that you have come to experience that delight the psalmist is talking about. Your law brings you know, satisfaction to my soul. Your law, the more I meditate, the more I understand your grace. Have you experienced that? John Calvin talks about the law positively. There are three you know, usage of the law, functions of the law he talks about, and he sums it up in this way. The law is a teacher unto us. If you really want to know what God's grace is, you need that tutoring session from the law. Why? Because law will come and teach you how much you need God's saving grace. Second usage of the law is it will come to give you the orderliness and the peace that you need. It is a way God has given to us so that you will restrain evil, not only in the world that we live in, but also in your own life. 
Finally, law, did you know? It is a guide which has been provided by God unto you for your Christian living. If you really want to know what it means to be a Christian, if you want to know what it means to bring joy to your Father in heaven, if you really want to know what it means to thrive as a Christian, healthy, thriving Christian, then you must understand the law. So that's actually the foundation I want to actually set before we go in. And what I want you to do today is maybe take it as a modern-day understanding of the Ten Commandments, and I want you to now see with me the very first commandment, and the very two points that I want to give you is this. First, God wants to get personal with you. Second, he wants what is best for you. Just two points, and follow along with me. Puritan writer Samuel Bolton describes the law in this way. The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. Martin Luther, who is known as the Father of Reformation, described a law in this way. Before I came to know the Lord, it was like a stick that used to discipline me. But when I came to know the Lord, it became not a stick that will hurt me, but a cane that will lead me in my spiritual walk. And I love the illustration. For what angle you look at the law will make a, all the difference in your life as the followers of Christ. So consider first, God wants to get personal with you. What is the first commandment that God gives us in today's text? Many people simply say the first commandment is that you shall not have any other gods before me. But if you actually read it carefully, the very prologue of the Ten Commandments begins not with the particular law, rather it begins with the introductory statement that comes from the Father. God spoke these words, and the first thing that he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want you to consider this. I am. It's a statement of identity, isn't it? In fact, Ten Commandments, to a great extent, before you treat it as a bunch of do's and don'ts, morality, I want you to see it as the introduction of a God who wants to reveal himself unto you. I am. In fact, when you study all the commandments, this is when you will come to know who God is the nature of God and the characteristics of God. Or shall I be more frank, personality of God. In these 10 laws, you come to find what he likes, what he dislikes. What he enjoys, what he doesn't enjoy. Pastor Francis, you know, he's got all the talents in the world. But did you know, he's one of the mostly, you know, socially awkward people that you ever come to encounter. That's my humble opinion. God is fair. You can't have it all. But he has come a long way. He cannot make eye contact with strangers, carry a conversation. Can I know now we could have a regular conversation? And I want to take credit for that. That's my job, my friendship with Francis. But all these years, I've come to know him And now I know what he likes, what he doesn't like, some of the things that he enjoys, some of the things he doesn't enjoy. 
How do you know what God is like is a question I want to pose to you. And the way you come to understand who God is is through the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There is a personal revelation of Jesus. Not only that, I want you to now consider the law itself and see how personal it is. There's something that is very interesting in today's text. God said, I want you to know that you shall not have any other gods before me. Did you know in the original uh, Hebrew language, the word you is not in plural form. That is, you as many. Rather, it is a singular pronoun of you just referring to you. In other words, when God gives this commandment, he's not speaking to mass or a lot of people. He's actually looking at you and no one else. James Fisher gives this commentary. Why do we do this? And other commands run in the second personal person singular, thou and not in the plural form. This is his answer. To signify that God would have us take his commandments as spoken to each of us, in particular as if we were mentioned by name. Ben, I am the Lord your God, and I don't want you to have any other gods before me. He is calling you, and you need to insert your name in this conversation, the dialogue that God wants to have. And he said, I am the Lord, your God, and I want you to know me. That is the appropriate and proper way of reading the Ten Commandments. You know who I am. God begins this Ten Commandments. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the one who saved you. Do you remember when you experienced God's great migrates for the first time? Do you remember when I sent my son to die for you? Do you remember all the promise that I made for you? Do you remember my commitment unto you? Speaks the Lord. So this is not simply God trying to make your life to be hard, burdensome, Rather, what God is doing in today's passage is this. Let's have a moment to define our relationship. You know everything about me. I am the Lord your God. And now I want you to respond to me because I want to be in this exclusive relationship with you. If you know anything about Ten Commandments, this is God's covenant with his people. You know what this is? I don't know whether young people still use this term. This is when God comes and says, may we have a DTR moment? Let's define the relationship. I am this, one who loves you, who saves you, and I want to be in this exclusive relationship with you. Now, I want you to respond, what will you do? If I may use the illustration that is used in the New Testament, the relationship between God and his church is what? Marriage. And for those who are married, you know it is the most exclusive, intimate relationship, isn't it? Now, do you see as to why the summary of the law is this? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's not about do's and don'ts. But the underlying principle behind God's law is 
whether you are willing to not commit into this relationship. I think it is Tim Keller who said, God does not want to date you. He doesn't want this partnership or business transaction. He doesn't even want friendship, but he wants marriage, lifelong commitment where I'm committed to you, where you are committed unto the Lord. So the first commitment that we see is on this topic of loyalty and commitment and love. It is when Jesus comes and says, I am your savior. I have come to die for you. The same question he asked Peter, do you love me three times, is really the essence of the first commandment. Everyone in this room, especially young people, you know, we have a lot of teenagers and college students and people in 20s at our church, and one of the things they didn't experience growing up was this, what I call, experience graves from the Lord. Simply means this. Have you come to know Jesus personally? You know, many people say it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And one thing that is really different about Christianity from all other religions is that other religions are summarized as a set of morality, whereas only in Christianity... It is a matter of you entering into this covenant, personal relationship with God or not. So when God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, you shall not have any other gods before me. This is God making the marriage vow on the altar saying, forever and ever I will love and I am committed to you. Now, will you be ready to make that commitment Have you known God personally in this way? Have you known God personally this way? Better yet, have you made a personal commitment to Jesus? That's what first commandment is all about. Second point I want you to consider with me is that he wants what is best for you. Speaking of marriage, uh, I've done my share of weddings, and one of the things that is required for all uh, church members is that they have to go through premarital counseling. And one of the uh, lessons, uh, we cover about four-week you know, uh, counseling session, but one workshop that I gave it to everyone that is you know, engaged, uh, when they come and see me, I uh, come this. You guys really know each other really well, right? You guys are very intimate. You have the most exclusive knowledge of each other. So one thing I want you to do is this. Healthy marriages, when you're able to have this hard conversation, not only when things are good, not only in good time, but are you able to have a hard conversation, particularly... If you know something about your fiance or future husband and wife that no one else knows about, how are you going to use that knowledge? You know, really interesting about marriage is this. It can either save you or destroy you. Why is it able to save you or destroy you? Because that person knows you exclusively that no one else knows about. Whenever my wife talks to me, and whenever she tells me, I have something that I want to tell you because no one else is going to tell you, then it's time for me to pay attention. But imagine using that amazing, let's say, intimate, exclusive knowledge, not in order to build that person up, but what if you use that against that person to destroy that person? 
if my family exposes me right here, I better run. They know everything about me. And if they want to destroy me, they could do so. The reason I'm saying this, I want you to now come back to the, today's context. God said, I'm the Lord your God. And if I know anything about the Bible, he's our creator, he's our maker. He knows you because he created you. He knows your DNA. He knows how you're wired. He knows you better than anyone else. In fact, if God wants to use what he knows about me against me, I do not stand a chance. But when I read the law, I don't hear an angry voice, my father who wants to come accuse me and condemn me. Rather, one who knows me the most is using the knowledge to build me up. So one who knows the most, this is what he says to you. I don't want you to have any other gods before me. It took me a very long time for me to realize this. And I used to sit and ponder, so why did God give us the first commandment, especially not to have any idols in life as the first commandment. I knew all the technical answers, theological answers, idolatry, we are uh, prone to it. As John Calvin calls it, our hearts are very deceitful. It's the manufacture of all lies, I know that. But here is when God, who is so personal with me, who comes to me with this command. Ben, I know you better than anyone else. And you know what I know about your heart? You are very obsessive. How many of you guys are like that? Very obsessive. I get fixated in one thing. He knows that my heart is very, very easily distracted. There's so many different passions, interests, likes, wants that consume and dictate the course of my life. And God knows the tendency of my heart better than anyone else. And you know what he says? Ben, I know how wandering your eyes are. I know how easily you get distracted. And I know how easily your heart is divided. So let me now tell you, because I know that about you, and I'm saying this to remind you, I don't want you to have any other idols before me. Can you relate to that? David Clarkson, a Puritan writer, gives this amazing definition on idolatry. Secret and soul idolatry is when your mind and heart is set on anything more than God, when anything is more value than God, more intended, more desire, more self, more trusted, more love than God. And if I were to say one universal problem that all of us in this room struggle with, even on this day. Isn't it true? We are struggling with our hearts that is divided and easily distracted. Money. My problem is I love money too much. And one thing I know, because I don't want to be the only terrible sinner right now, all of us struggle with that. We make idols to be real issue in life, don't we? Children, 
Sometimes we are worse than the first-generation parents. We're all about their education. We're all about their future. We make their success and accomplishment be our prize and our glory, do we not? They have become our idols. Relationship, beauty, you name it, anything, everything, we can turn something that is good into an idol, something that is a blessing and turn it into an ultimate thing. And we desire, love, and value those things more than God. So God says, I know you better than anyone else. And I want you to love me. The remedy to idolatry, according to God, says that you shall not have any other gods before me. Did you know that word before literally translates face or countenance of God. Speaking of marital counseling, one thing that I always share to everyone that is married, if you really want to be healthy and vital, this is it. And especially to young, you know, engaged couple, I always give them this warning. If you think that immorality is something that will not happen to you, I want you to have a wake-up call, and I want you to really be aware of this issue. When you spend more time in your office, spending more time with those outside of your family, there are bound to be temptations. Husband and wife, what is the best way for you to defend the purity of your marriage? For me, this is the answer. When you are utterly satisfied in your spouse, then you don't need to look elsewhere to be tempted. When you are utterly happy, intimate with your partner, then there is no temptation that could come in your way. When God said, I want you to have no other gods before my face, you know what he's saying? I want you to gaze your eyes on me. Just as when you see the beauty of your spouse, when you remember the goodness, loveliness of your wife, for instance, then you will not turn your eyes to someone else in the same way. I want you, your distracted eyes, not to be on other things, but I want what is best for you, and then what is best for you is this, when you gaze your eyes on my face. When you see me for who I am, when you see my beauty, my glory, my word, that's when you are able to resist the temptations of other idols. And when you consider the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus was not a moralistic teacher who came to bind your conscience by do's and don'ts. But do you remember the message of the gospel? I want you to come drink this water because when you drink of this water, you will be so satisfied you will never be thirsty again. When you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. What does that mean? In plain language, it means this. When you experience me, when I become being the most beautiful thing in your eyes, when I become the most important thing in your life, when I am better than money, sex, addiction, anything else in this world, then you will be able to come and love me. So Jesus says this. Do you know why, so why I tell you to obey the first commandment? You shall not have any other gods 
before me because I am better than anything else you'll find in this world. A lot of young men and women, I don't know how old you guys are, but most of you guys look a little younger than I am. As somebody older, I can say this. One of the greatest deceptions of the evil one, when you're about to make your commitment to follow Jesus, is this. The evil one will come and say to you, when you commit to Jesus, you'll miss out on life. That is the greatest lie ever told. When you follow Jesus, you're not gonna miss out on life. Rather, you will come to find the greatest satisfaction in life. Until you come to realize that, the first commandment will never make sense to you. It's not about having many other things to say now, but rather it is you are ready to give yourself unto God and unto Jesus because you have now experienced and understood that Jesus' grace is sufficient, it is better than anything else in this world. The only way for you to overcome addiction, obsession of your heart, is to overcome it with a greater obsession and addiction in life. If you are obsessed with money, when Jesus becomes your heart's obsession, like Zacchaeus, he will be able to give it away. Not like the young rich ruler who held on to the money because he failed to see one thing in life. Jesus is better than money. When you are into a life of immorality, you may say the pleasures of sin is something that is far greater than anything else, but Jesus, come eat and drink with me, of me, then you will know your soul's satisfaction. Do you see that? Jesus wants to get personal with you. The application I want to share with you is directly from the words of John Calvin. John Calvin argues that when you consider the first commandment, there are four things that you need to consider. Adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. In adoration, we worship Christ. In trust, we treasure Christ. In invocation, we look to Christ. In thanksgiving, we find grace in Christ. That's how we obey the first commandment. In practical way, this is what it means. Whom do you praise? That is your heart's adoration. You may compliment your children, your spouse, and your friend, but who receives your highest praise and adoration? Is it Jesus? Second, whom do you count on? When you are in need, in desperate need, to what and to whom do you turn to? Do you turn to Jesus and do you trust him? And whom do you call for that is invocation? Where do you look for answers in life? Where do you turn for purpose and joy in life? And finally, whom do you thank and give thanks? When you are thankful for, for many things in life, do you consider those things to be the fruit of your labor and glory in your own success? But like Paul, do you confess, what have I that is not of the Lord? And do you give glory and thanks to God? 
So I want you to take a moment because this, I believe, to be the very essence of Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus answered, I mean, asked this question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Many say you're a prophet, you're a teacher, one of the great Old Testament teachers that were rabbis. But Jesus asked this question to his disciples, hence what I call the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Who do you say that I am? It's a personal, personal confession of Jesus in your own life. And if I know anything about Christian journey, that's what I struggle to confess on a daily basis. But do you see the one who came from heaven to die for your sins? And the greatest thing about this marriage covenant that God is making with you is this, that he will never dissolve this marriage based on your faithfulness or commitment. But the Ten Commandments, my beloved, is the confession of the triune God who comes and saves you and says, I will love you with all my heart, with all my strength, and all my life. And I will never give up on you. And I'll be faithful unto you. Now, he asks, who do you say that I am? I hope and pray for this amazing congregation. You're not existing in vacuum. But as a faithful church, I want you to remain faithful until the day of our Lord. I want Sojourner Church to remain faithful, not only this generation, but to the next generation and their generation. And I want the members of Sojourner to be known as people, if not anything, who have come to experience the unconditional, amazing grace of our Lord Jesus. And in response to God's amazing grace, we now will say, I will not have any other God before you because you have chosen me and you have loved me and you have saved me. May that be the response of those who follow Jesus. Can we finish with an amen? Let me give you a moment to pray. Time of commitment and time of response is where you will come to respond to God's grace that you have received. And if you have received the unconditional love, his unconditional vow, it is now for you to come and respond to God. If there are any other idols that you love more than Jesus, may we repent. If you know any areas of struggle of your faith, let us repent. Can we also make a time to commit? so that we will love Jesus. And when we fall, and when we falter in our faith, let's ask God that he will renew us with his grace so we'll get back on our feet and say, we love you more than anything else. That is the summary of the first commandment. Let's pray together.